1874, the British government passed a series of laws called the Regulation of Public Worship. A lot of people cared an awful lot about church back then. True. On one side, people wanted more ritual and ceremony. Order. On the other side, they wanted mostly none. In the midst of the battle, one minister, a rector in London at a church called St. George in the East, had stopped a practice whereby people who volunteered in church services could avail themselves of liquor from the rector's cupboard before and after the service. The Reverend King closed the cupboard. We have opened it again. Welcome to the rector's cupboard. Order. So welcome to Rector's Cupboard, remote edition number whatever during our pandemic time. We're joined again by uh, Ken Bell, our cupboard master. Hello, hello. And by Allison Williams in her blanket hello. Yes. And by Amanda Mina at the Orpheum. Thank goodness well, for Zoom backgrounds. The hello. Zoom background is the Orpheum. Welcome all of you. Um, we have this uh, episode, we have an interview with Kevin Miller. Kevin was is a documentary filmmaker. He also writes... Uh, kids books and um and fiction for young adults um really fascinating guy i i uh, was it was really great to connect with him and we found him through he's made a couple of movies that uh, resonate with some of the themes that we talk about one of them is called hellbound and another one is called j-e-s-u-s-a so jesus with an a on the end that uh, that's the one we were talking we are speaking with kevin about so you'll hear that interview in just a few minutes um, it does pick up kind of um, themes from our neighbor to the South America, and particularly the interplay of Christian faith and uh, American political culture right now. So we're going there a little bit. We're just going to, uh, not too much. We don't have to talk about he who must not be named, but we can uh, talk about a couple things in advance. So I wanted to start by by noting this. I heard today, and I know you know now because I we were just talking about it, uh, outside of the recording, that this guy, uh, Paul Vasquez, uh, died within the last couple of days. He died over the weekend. Now, if you don't remember, Paul Vasquez was the man behind the double rainbow viral recording from 2010. So he saw, I think it was at Yosemite, is that right? Somebody say? Yeah. I think he, he kind of lives in near somewhere in Yosemite. He has some nickname like mountain mountain man or something and if you see the images of him he he fits the bill um and uh he recorded this this video because he saw a double rainbow and he just about burns up with his enthusiasm at at seeing this he is weeping he is laughing he is freaking out he's screaming like it's the biggest celebration in the world um and i thought that would be a nice little segue into this concept of exceptionalism so you guys have seen double rainbow guy what do you think he's 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 awesome his his excitement and enthusiasm about seeing this 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 rainbow which is something we've all seen everyone has seen a rainbow but when you it's a double rainbow ken what are you talking about it it is almost a a triple rainbow. rainbow almost a triple but when you do see it it doesn't matter what age you are. When you see a rainbow, you, there's a part of you that goes, oh, look, a rainbow. You point it out because it is kind of, it is beautiful. It is exceptional. Um, yeah. But his, his, the amount of enthusiasm he has for the double, almost triple rainbow is quite astounding. <laughs> so here's, here's why I thought about it today with, with this, um, with our time we're in right now. I don't know about this. I'm 
the age that I am. Um, and so I was not uh, sentient politically when the Vietnam War was on. Uh, I was born um, during it effectively. Um, but uh, I, I've grown up in a time where the United States of America is supposedly exceptional. Uh, that it's like, you know, number one around the world or whatever. And I was watching the press briefing today over the coronavirus, as they refer to it down there, COVID-19. And I saw these two huge banners. You guys see this? You've seen it. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. You're looking at it right now. Photos. Two yeah. huge banners that said, and it's just for the press and stuff, but it's it, the fact that there are banners mean this is a propaganda exercise. And the banners say, America leads the world in testing, which is not true. America does not lead the world in testing, certainly not not when you count per capita, maybe in sheer numbers, but they're- In sheer they're, numbers they do, but in uh, testing per 100,000, they're like 25th or 26th in the world. Right, um, so I just wanna ask you this question, because uh, the exceptionalism that I see with Paul Vasquez, when he sees something exceptional and just loses his mind, I love that kind of exceptionalism. That's what I want you know, more of. But the kind of exceptionalism that says, I am exceptional, or we are exceptional, simply by where we were born or something, by where, um, and I just thought, you know, what do you think about that? Whether you want to make a political statement or a double rainbow statement, or how did you take the press briefing? Go ahead. Well, there's part where there's, there's very different motivations. I, I think that you, you hear things like that, you know, America is a city on a hill and they, they tie and you'll, you see in the, the JES USA documentary a lot where they go like, America is the world's watchdog. We have to keep the moral compass. And they talk about that. Um, it's, it's a little concerning. Um, and, and there's an arrogance to it. Whereas you, you look at Paul Vasquez and he is just in awe <laughs> and it is, it, it is joyfulness and it is wonder and he is very literally awestruck by what he is seeing um and there's hope and there's yeah there's something so much better there yeah i think yeah, there's was, so much emotion in it i mean he starts whispering like when you yeah. start to watch the video it starts as a whisper just would you look at that but it like there's like this crescendo in the way he's Right, screaming there. into the mountains. I can only hope to have that kind of emotion about certain things in my life. Like that was a, a real, like visceral thing that happened to him in that reaction. Um, he wasn't playing for anyone. He wasn't trying to. No. And I think that you can juxtapose those kind of two scenes together. That you, and I mean, my my brother-in-law's a sign maker. All I can think of is those are really big signs. That's a decent amount of money that the government spent on making whatever the that hell. Was, the uh, America leads the uh, world, and whatever. Like, yeah. like, what is the actual point of that, other than to prop up some sort of thing, as if trying to convince people that America is not. One of the things, oh, sorry, Ken, go ahead. Uh, uh, yeah, so on April 23rd, the New York Times had an article called Sadness and Disbelief from a World Missing American Leadership. The coronavirus pandemic is shaking the bedrock assumption about American U about U.S. exceptionalism. There you go. This is perhaps the first global crisis in more than a century where no one is even looking for Washington. They don't want their response because- And they, they don't, and they don't want- to lead, they don't. They, they, they. The Americans have said that, or they say some. Some of them would. Some of them would want to lead. But the you're talking about the administration. Yeah, has said we don't. We don't want any part of leading this and stuff. Um, and you know, there, the Americans have always been in this tough spot where 
everyone hates them for the things they do, but also everyone expects them to do something. And whenever you do something internationally, globally, across geopolitical lines, you're going to make friends and you're going to make enemies. And so they've always been in a bit of a tough spot. If they don't get involved, like they didn't get involved in Rwanda, everyone's mad at them for not getting involved. If they do get involved, like they got involved in Iraq and, and, and other places, then everyone gets in Vietnam, then everyone gets upset with them. So there's, there is this tension that they are in as the global leader politically, militarily, uh, financially. But in this particular case, sure. and they built into themselves a sense of, well, we're supposed to be that. It was Reagan yeah. who referenced them being the, the basically the new Jerusalem. This, yeah. this which is nonsense, of course. Build. The the um, it strikes me, and it, it reflects to the article you're you're mentioning. Politically, there are two Western nations that have declared their exceptionalism in the last five years, and those nations are uh, Britain, UK, and the United States. These also happen to be the two nations that are doing the worst <laughs> in terms of, so I just, you know, not taking political sides, though Though I definitely be willing to do that in this case. I think the current administration in the United States is reprehensible. Um, but uh, that's, that's not the point of this. The point of this is to, to ask that question of what does it mean to declare exceptionalism? And one of the things that, that COVID has brought about is that, it, it weren't no one's exceptional that this can hit um, anybody at any time and the virus doesn't kind of go well you're American so I'm, I'm not gonna you know get go towards you and and the final thing I thought before we end this little brief thing was um, I look at I don't want to think of Paul Vasquez and this stuff together it's such a nice counterpoint to the declared exceptionalism that exceptionalism is something that um, that you encounter not something that you declare about self yeah. Well, and, and not something that you get to own. And not something that you get to own. Right? Yeah, I, yeah, I can't help but feel it's like an American virtue that it is our right to be exceptional. Yeah. Right? It's, uh, well, there is no other way. It's inconceivable. Um, we are it. Well, yeah, yeah you think of like America is the best at this, the best at this, the mm -hmm. best at this. And I can't help but think of that uh, uh, newsroom clip, uh, the Aaron Sorkin movie with... Um, Jeff Daniels. Yeah, the and, beginning. Yeah. And yeah. he's just like, oh, dude, this is not actually the case. And he like very pre fiftieth in the world in this, thirty second in the world yeah. now. The only the only category we lead in is executing, you know, mentally handicapped people or something like that. Like it's well, and, because, and yeah. you wonder like is is what we witnessed today in this press conference this this need to prop up something that has been a bit of a shell for a while now uh, maybe. It, it feels like that. It feels like a bit of yeah. the decline of an empire. We'll see. I think that neither side right now, left or right, could could stand up and say, we are not exceptional. I mean, you, you, they would get absolutely hammered for that, right? Both sides well, have Well, Obama to tried. Obama tried a number of times. And yeah, you did, got, you did not build that road or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> he got yeah. lambasted for, for, for saying that sort of thing. So um, let's... let's um, Let's move into the interview with with this in mind as we look at, and we really recommend watching the the JES JES USA um, yeah. movie um, because it'll it'll bring up some of these themes, and then with ourselves to hope that we can find moments where we see something, encounter something that is exceptional, but where we're not declaring our own <laughs> uh, exceptionalism. I would think that in terms of Christian faith as well, 
that uh, at times I grew up in, in an evangelical culture that liked to declare its exceptionalism. And well, I think Christianity now that, does that, right? Especially yeah. evangelical Christianity declares itself it, it, the only religion, the only but faith. But that didn't, that didn't help me uh, get to the depths of it. No. And, and really move on. And so I think, you know, moving to a point where we say we don't have to declare the exceptionalism and that actually helps us to value these things, whether it's America yeah. or Christian faith or something else more. So we have stuff to taste, though. And our cupboard master is here with us. And uh, Ken, tell us what we're tasting and what's... Well, speaking of exceptional, uh, let me introduce uh, some exceptional cider we're tasting from Windfall. It's a local BC cidery. It's a small company. They just started recently. Um, they have three different types of cider. Uh, we're tasting two of them. We're tasting the Hail Mary, which is uh, BC apples and some ripe local berries. So it comes across as sort of almost like a rosé cider. It's very, very dry, uh, but it's, it's really quite crisp and light. Apparently it goes well with Mediterranean foods, grilled meats and stuff like that. And so I'm tasting that one. I think, Amanda, you're tasting that one as well. Mm -hmm. And the other one is called Jackpot. It is just Allison, apples. Jackpot. Yeah. Todd and Allison are trying the Jackpot. I just tried it. It is really good. Do you think it's really good? I like it. I mean, I think it might be exceptional. It's it just exceptional. <laughs> it goes well, pairs well. Cheese, <laughs> pork, charcuterie, and, and Asian cuisine. You know, um, it goes well on its own. I like how it looks. It looks great. First of all, the can, the art is fantastic. Oh, yeah, the graphic design is really the good. The graphic design is wonderful. Which, which matters, right? Stuff tastes better when, it, when the can is designed well. And yeah. then, and then the, the look of the actual cider when you pour it is great. It's quite, um, it's not like an artificial color type feel. No. To it, right? no. Um, it's very, and then uh, just a really nice dry crisp. Is the one we have, Allison, kind of a blend of something? It's a blend of apples. It's yeah. a blend of dessert apples. It's I nice. Think tropical and, fruit. I mean, I generally like my ciders a touch drier than this. Drier. I like really dry cider. I this think is almost as you dry will as very is. much enjoy this one, Allison. It's not sweet at all, and it's really fantastic. Yeah. I am looking yeah. forward to cracking that can open. Allison, I am looking at the scale here, the continuum, and it goes yeah. from dry to sweet, and there's barely any space on the other side. I, I don't know what you want me to tell you. I like very dry ciders. It's she very exceptional in the way she- Allison is already so sweet. No, anyways. Um, no one's ever said that. No, the one thing I would, the one I would say about it is just be aware that it is, um, it would be, if it was a beer, it would be called a strong beer because they are 7%. Yeah. Uh, so they're it, not it, a- Let's hammer a few of the three or four of these back in a sitting sort of thing. But they're really good. You can get them uh, at a bunch of different liquor stores across <laughs> the city. Amanda's doing come see, come see. You can have three or four if you them. want. Just don't stumble anywhere outside of your COVID uh, bubble zone. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. In place, and uh, we look forward to trying more of their stuff when it comes out. Ken, thank you for delivering it. Yes. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, and uh, and now my wife Jennifer will get the uh, the rest of this can. So uh, thank you all very much. We look forward to this uh, interview with Kevin Miller again. Um, so those who are in our neighborhood here, avail yourself of the. Sorry, Ken, what's it called again? Windfall. Windfall. I'm looking right yeah. at it. Windfall Cidery, which you can get at your local BC liquor store. Uh, and then all of us go uh, as much as you can and go uh, watch uh, J E S U S A. You can look it up online. 
and you'll find out how to watch it. Thank you guys very much. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Rector's Covered. We're pleased to have with us uh, this afternoon as guest, Kevin Miller. Kevin is a writer and filmmaker, and our familiarity with him has come through a couple of films as, that he has made as a documentary filmmaker. One is called Hellbound, and one is called J-E-S-U-S-A, or you could just say it's Jesus with an A on the end. And so that's the film that uh, those of us who will be speaking with Kevin this afternoon have watched and really, really connected with, and we think you will too. So we've put a link in the episode notes of how to, uh, how to avail yourselves of of that movie and and give it a watch but uh so with us today we have producer rick all by zoom because life is by zoom right now we have allison williams with us hello and ken bell hello and uh welcome kevin so kevin we thought right off the top if you could just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the projects you're involved in and maybe a little bit about how you came to make uh this movie j-e-s-u-s-a yeah, well, I uh, I view myself primarily as a writer. Uh, I kind of became a filmmaker by default. I I grew up in Saskatchewan on a farm in a small town, and I you know dreamed of growing up and becoming a great Canadian novelist. But I realized at some point that uh, to be a great Canadian novelist is also to be uh, a poor Canadian novelist. And so I thought, <laughs> why not try and write some things where you know the chance of earning better revenue is there. So I. I I set my sights on the film industry. And so that's initially how I got into it. I started as a screenwriter uh, and I got pulled into documentaries really by accident. My first movie was a low budget horror film called uh, After. And uh, just through some connections I'd made to that film, I got invited to participate on a documentary uh, with Ben Stein called Expelled, which asked the question, um, is intelligent design science? And it was actually a really interesting experience in terms of, you know, just studying the whole connection between philosophy and science and theology and, and uh, you know, the interplay between these things. And it, I think it kind of set me up for my whole career working in documentaries because it's really what you're looking at there is epistemology. So how do we form a belief and how is any belief that we have, how can we know that it's warranted? And let me tell you, I feel like I'm fighting, I'm not the only one, of course, but I feel like I'm fighting a one-man battle every single day on Facebook trying to get people to examine their beliefs about COVID-19 and the pandemic. I mean, it's it's frightening. The level of scientific illiteracy and you know, this whole uh, just inability to be self-critical of, of what somebody believes, it's, it's something. So working on Expelled was, was a really good way to start in documentary films, and, and that was moderately successful. And so then, uh, you know, one film led to another and to another. Next thing I know, you know, I've got a number of documentary films under my belt. But I kind of felt that I'd, uh, you know, in my career, I'd always been the the bridesmaid, never the bride, so mm-hmm. to speak, and uh, that I really wanted to do my own film. So I went from just being a writer to learning how to direct and edit. And so Hellbound was my directorial debut. Um, I did another documentary actually focused on a homeless situation in Abbotsford called the Chicken Manure Incident. Um, and oh. then... Uh, uh, JES USA is kind of the next big feature length uh, documentary. And that's, I kind of look at it as a, as a quasi sequel to Hellbound because both films are looking at the problem of, of violence, um, divine violence and human violence. They're just looking at it from different perspectives. So you've had like the range of your work is, is really broad, fantastic. And, uh, but yet there's clearly this interest in, as you say, philosophical, theological kind of matters. Um, what has drawn you there? I, there's some kind of church background, church history, kind of faith history. What's well, your interest there? 
Yeah, well, I became a Christian when I was nine. I had, you know, the, the typical evangelical born again experience at a Bible camp. And of course, included with that was this idea of hell. That's where the idea of hell first entered my mind. And that's a terrifying thing to introduce to a nine-year-old, as anyone who's gone through that has experienced. I, I definitely agree with Richard Dawkins that, you know, you can terrorize children yeah. by teaching them these things. And I was definitely terrorized. Um, and I think that never left, you know, I, I think that it's so interesting that a decision that you make when you're nine years old ends up shaping the rest of your life, you know, warning to nine year olds everywhere. Um, but, uh, you know, cause I kind of feel like the rest of my life has been spent either sort of acting on that decision or acting against that decision. And so I think that, you know, hell in particular, I, uh, I look at this idea of eternal conscious torment and the image of God that comes with it is sort of like a virus that sneaks in. Um, when somebody has a, a salvation experience and it eventually threatens to overwhelm the host for a lot of people and yeah. people react to it in different ways. Um, but I reacted it, to it, I think, in, in just trying to make sense of the story. I mean, I'm a writer, I work on stories and the story just didn't make sense. Um, and so hence my kind of instinct, it's, I'm kind of being led by instinct and then trying to inform that instinct I went to Regent College. Um, I also, well, I went to university and Bible college. I've, I spent way too many years in school, but my main <laughs> focus was on, you know, philosophy and, and epistemology and just trying to figure out how can we know that we know anything and, and how can we, um, I guess, uh, be constructive in terms of our, the way we engage with the world and our beliefs. Mm. And, uh, you know, cause I just, I just find that, uh, it's something we all wrestle with, and and I find the whole process really fascinating. Right. So, uh, tell us what what JSUSA is about. I mean, we all know because we've watched it, and we would Great. highly recommend it to whoever is listening. But uh, tell us, the listeners, what it's about. Well, JSUSA um, is a feature length documentary that really looks at um, the conflation of Christianity and nationalism, American nationalism in particular, but also. Um, front and center is is the problem of violence is how do we reconcile um, you know how, how do we be people of peace in a violent world and I think this is something that Christians of course have wrestled with throughout the history of the church and and you know Christ has been depicted in various ways some people see him as a warrior um, other people see him as you know a lamb or as you know, Mark Driscoll calls him a limp-wristed hippie Jesus mm. um, but uh, you know I think that uh, we all sort of see Jesus in different ways. And, and you know, JSUSA, the first title of the film, the one that we were working with through a lot of the shooting was called The Silence of the Lamb, singular. Oh, really? And uh, the idea was that you have these images, competing images of Jesus the lion and Jesus the lamb. And so why has the lamb been silent? Why is the lion roaring all the time? Why is religion, why are Christians, evangelicals in particular, always baptizing state violence? Um, doesn't, isn't that a contradiction of, uh, you know, first principles and a contradiction of, of the example of Jesus, you know, through teaching and through deed where, you know, he's literally stepping into the machinery of state violence and submitting to it rather than squashing it and, you know, leading a rebellion. So how do we keep finding ourselves in that position? So JES USA kind of tracks that back through time, um, you know, looking at, I, I chose to focus on the United States, even though I'm a Canadian, because Christianity, specific types of Christianity in the States are heavily patriotic, heavily militarized. And so just like the title combines Jesus and USA, I think in many people's yeah. minds, that's exactly what's happened is that yeah. there's this myth of America as God's chosen nation and, 
and uh, it's just got this special place in the world. And, and when, when America does violence, it's never a bad thing because it's always being done for the right reasons. And, uh, you know, so that's what Rene Girard would just call a textbook yeah. myth. It's a story you tell about the violence you commit that completely absolves you of evil and, and all the evil is instead directed upon uh, whatever scapegoat you've happened to chosen now, at the it time. Goes, it goes further than that in, in your film. I mean, the four of us who are, are talking to you here, we all watched it and then some other friends of ours as well. And to a person, every single one, um, I think I watched it before the rest. So, you know, you kind of got that, you should watch that this then. So they would send me a message or something in the first 10 minutes of the film where um, you're, having these conversations with people who hold these militaristic nationalistic views and who have uh, sanctified this violence. Um, it actually goes further than even kind of saying it's okay. It, it basically says it is the responsibility of, of a Christian to be violent uh, effectively is what some of them, what some of the early people in the film are saying. Like you have a, a pastor who, who says uh, Jesus fashioned a whip um, and drew the, and drove the money changers from the temple. And so therefore Jesus is pro arms manufacturing, uh, <laughs> you know, but having said that, one of the things that struck all of us about the film is that uh, it's not a polemic. Like it's not, uh, at least in our minds, it, it doesn't suffer from some of that kind of social media stuff that, that just is just yelling at the other side. I think you try to show us uh, how people got to think this way. And you also show, I think, the earnestness of that belief on the part of some of those people. Um, was that was that important to you to kind of have a particular tone to this movie that ju just didn't like mock one side or something? That well, definitely. If you're, I mean, because for me, underlying the whole film is is Rene Girard's mimetic theory, which says that you know, which is talking about scapegoating, and that that that's kind of our default position is that to find peace within the group, we find somebody we can direct our violence against, mm -hmm. um, and then we find peace united around an enemy. And so that's exactly the thing we didn't want to do in this film. Um, so I, you know, it's funny, David Bentley Hart, who's in the movie, he, I asked him, you know, once he saw it, I said, so what'd you think? He says, well, after I fast forwarded past those guys at the beginning, it got pretty good. Um, our first screening, we had somebody walk out about 10 minutes in cause she just couldn't handle, she thought a bait and switch had happened where she'd been told this is going to be a film that explores nonviolence. Instead, she's hit with these these people at the beginning who are, you know, talking exactly the opposite. But the people who represent the position near the beginning of the film that are really, what they're arguing for um, is this idea that we are called to be shepherds. Um, and while well, the way they break up the world is that there's sheep, uh, there's wolves, and then there's sheepdogs. Right. And so these people would consider themselves to be sheepdogs. And, 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 you know, even if you're just a shepherd, what is one of your goals when you're guiding a flock through the countryside? It's to protect it from wild animals and any kind of threat. And so there's this sense that to be a good shepherd means to uh, reserve um, the right uh, to use violence, including deadly force, to protect yeah. people. In fact, it would be sinful not to do that. And so I would believe these people, you know, Sean Moon, uh, Lieutenant yeah. Colonel uh, Dave Grossman, Jimmy Meeks, Carl Chin, that they are acting out of a very paternalistic, um, uh, sincere desire to be a force of good in the world. So Jimmy Meeks, for instance, he was a cop in Dallas for 40 years, never drew his gun one time, which is pretty remarkable if you know anything about the crime statistics in Dallas, Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's also a hostage negotiator. So he managed, even though he was authorized by the state to use deadly force, he managed to avoid using it. 
uh, throughout his career. But he still felt it was vitally important that, uh, you know, we retain that capability. Um, now, yeah, and so we can kind of discuss that. Um, but I think that, you know, part of my problem with that stance, as much as I recognize the impulse behind it, is that you kind of end up in a slippery slope situation. Mm -hmm. And this is something Walter Wink really talks about is that, you know, violence you reserved as a last resort often becomes the first <clears throat> thing we turn to because it gives us the greater sense of control over a situation. And yet we have seen time and time again, as Martin Luther King Jr. points out, that that violence can never offer, offer a permanent solution to a problem. It can only really offer new and more complicated versions of the problem. And more often than not, when we apply violence in an effort to control a situation, we end up escalating a situation. And uh, this is why I think Jesus is constantly telling us to stop imitating. He's, he keeps saying, if somebody brings something bad against you, don't imitate them by bringing it against them. Stop the chain, break the chain. Um, because if we imita imitate, we escalate. It's just human nature. And so how can we break that? And, and that's, you know, really, I think what, what, you know, the entire thing that Jesus is, is constantly demonstrating, you know, even uh, fashioning a whip and driving the animals, not the people, out of the temple, um, he's, uh, he's trying to, uh, he's, he's not escalating violence. He's not bringing a form of violence against the money changers that has been brought against him. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of acting out in a prophetic, almost pantomime. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, in, in, in the film, you also see this, there's not just a genuineness to their conviction, but there's also, I mean, they back it up with, with biblical account, they quote scripture regularly, uh, there's the, you know, do not murder versus do not kill, um, they, they have a lot of, they, then they look to the, the violence that they say God compels in the, especially in the old Testament, you know, so go into the, into the uh, city and destroy everything except for the trees, uh, destroy all the animals or all the animals, all the women, all the children, all that. Um, and I, and I think one of the things I appreciated about what you do in the film and the, the, your guests that you have on there is they then re-examine some of those images. So the, the idea of, uh, redemptive violence that that good can come out of acting violently, but also going back then to the creation account and and the that being an account biblically of actually creation out of nonviolence as opposed to all the other violence, the reimaging or reimagining of what the Abraham story is, and so that and it really struck me. And this is where the question is: is talking about that replace the slow gradual replacement of the sacrificial system ending with Jesus being the very end of that slow replacement. Um, talk a bit about that and how, how you understood that as you were listening to them speak about that. Yeah, well, um, that's kind of, you know, was one of my agendas with the film. Like, you know, with a film like this, <clears throat> what I always think with the documentary is that you need to have a thesis and antithesis and mm -hmm. a synthesis. And so that's kind of what we're, we're working toward in the film. Um, but yeah, um, I think that... Uh, What's again, what's undergirding the film is really Rene Girard, at least for me personally, it's Rene Girard of mimetic theory. And it's this idea that the default position for humans, um, you know, from a very primitive age is, is how do we find, how do we find peace? Cause we're, we're constantly imitating each other and imitation leads to rivalry. And suddenly you end up in a situation where you could have this war of all against all. So how do you how do you channel that violence in a way that doesn't destroy the community? Well, you find a scapegoat. You find somebody within the community or maybe somebody without the community. 
and you you unite everybody around them and you channel the community's aggression and violence toward, toward that individual and then something magical happens. Um, peace comes and, and you start to almost look at that victim of your violence in a completely different way that maybe actually that group of people or that individual was actually sent from the gods. And so um, you start to reenact that ritual and maybe you form some taboos around the behavior that led to the crisis that caused the scapegoating event to happen. You know, so you have taboos, you have, you have rituals that grow out of that and you have a myth, you have a story. Um, and it tells of what life was like before the crisis and what life was like after the crisis. And so these things Gerard would argue uh, like he would, he would say that virtually every violent creation myth is based on a real event. Of course, it's impossible to know what that real event is, but he, he did some really interesting work and not just him, but several other people sort of helping decode these myths. So why, for instance, do so many creation myths begin with the death and dismemberment yeah. mm-hmm. of a god or a goddess? So part of that, uh, and, and what happens out of that death and dismemberment is order. There's chaos, but suddenly now we have the sky, we have the sea, we have the mountains and all that sort of thing. And it's, it's out of the death of some kind of a God. And so, uh, you know, we talk in the film about how the biblical narrative or the Jew, I would say the Jewish narrative counters that is that, that creation begins with a word. Nobody dies, Mm -hmm. at least in the first version of the creation myth, the second version, um, which didn't sneak in there without, you know, some Jewish editors realize editors realizing it's there for a reason. Um, I think it's really providing a commentary on the dominant myth of the day, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And so I think so much of what we, you know, were taught in Sunday school was kind of like this literal creation story. I think it's actually really insightful uh, political and religious commentary. You know, Peter Enns will talk about this is that uh, the Pentateuch is kind of like a self-identity document for the Jews coming out of exile. It's like, who are we? We've been living in a foreign country and, and within all this foreign mythology, so so who are we and how are we different? Mm-hmm. So that's why you just see this remarkable contrast in Genesis to so many other creation stories. And people have used those similarities to try and write off uh, the Bible, for instance, as being untrue or being a counterfeit. But it's it's intentional. It's 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 directly addressing those stories, and so mm-hmm. you're going to see some some comparisons. That, that's so like so in in the in the film then. Uh, there's talk about Gilgamesh or the story of the founding of uh, Rome, right? And mm-hmm. these brothers and the, and done so well that that whole middle section of the film, when you move from kind of this way of like it, one of the things that hit me so hard at the beginning, wasn't just these kind of, like you say, somebody walked out in a screening or whatever, wasn't just like, how could these people think this way? But it was the constant quoting of scripture that, that or not so much quoting, but citing. Right, literally, just like Genesis, blah blah blah. Wrote, and, and then you're like, wait a minute. If I know some of those texts, then it's not saying what they say it's saying, or the or the way that you get to this interpretation. And so then, when you move to uh, kind of look at a, a, I would say a healthier way or a proper way to interpret scripture, you do that so well. And then also you look at the history, and as you say, with the with you know the creation myths and how uh, the church got this way and how the um, how this kind of militaristic movement. Um, comes about. Uh, how is the movie being received? Uh, it's being received quite well. I mean, um, uh, well, let, let me just back up, uh, just to address the other thing about quoting of scripture. I think sure. that's important to bring up. You know, I've been involved in a lot of controversial films. Um, I kind of joke that I do. I, I work, I mean, I did end up becoming a novelist, by the way. I do write kids' novels. 
Um, but I, I say I write books that make kids laugh and, and films that make adults angry. But I've been in, involved in a, in a lot of uh, controversial films and uh, specifically involving religious topics. <clears throat> and the funny phenomenon is people will they'll quote scripture at me as if I've never read the Bible yeah. or as if I form my belief because yeah. I somehow missed that scripture. You know, it's like, Oh, I didn't know it was there. Um, and they think just by sort of repeating the scripture to my face, that will just automatically the lights will go on on my brain. And so this is where I think epistemology enters the picture, this idea of how do we form a belief and why can, you know, smart people of goodwill examine the same evidence and come away with a completely different conclusion. It's, it's not because the people who disagree with me are evil um, you know, an agents of, of, of the devil. It's just because, you know, we all are viewing things through a different grid. And so it just naturally That's... causes us to see things differently. But yeah, as far as the film's been received, you know, we were supposed to release February 25th. Unfortunately, we had a, a delay uh, with our distributor that suddenly got run over by the Mack truck of the pandemic. And mm -hmm. so we ended up releasing about a month later on Vimeo. Uh, we will be available uh, on Amazon and Google Play and oh, iTunes great. probably within the next couple of months. And we actually just put a pitch out to Netflix today. We'll see oh, where things are going there. Let's hope, that, let's hope that's picked up. It would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. Um, but uh, yeah, so the film hasn't gone out far and wide, but we have, you know, uh, you know, we've screened it in several places across the U.S. before the shutdowns happen. And uh, we've had a healthy uh, engagement uh, where it has been for sale on Vimeo. So yeah, it's been good. I mean, I'm, I'm waiting to be hit by, uh, you know, backlash on the film because yeah. I'm sure it's yet to come. I don't think enough people have seen it yet. Well, I mean, you do seem that, or not seem, you do in the film address several very, what, what I would think would be very key aspects of a lot of people's faith. Um, I found probably one of the most compelling things is how how the the people you were interviewing kind of re not reimagined but explained in a way that i hadn't heard before like the cross where it's talking about how i've always been uncomfortable thinking of the cross as god pouring out all of his anger and wrath on jesus and i found the framework that was presented by the film to be really helpful in understanding um, why that always kind of sat so uncomfortably with me. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've got, uh, I've got a quote here from the film, if you don't mind, where sure, um, sure. they're saying, the cross is where human violence is revealed to be unspeakably evil. And we, are see we see that we are capable of murdering God. So the cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. The cross is where Jesus reveals God as savior. And he goes on to say, like, I see the violence of the cross as entirely human and the love and forgiveness seen at the cross as entirely divine. And I, I thought, that's going to piss off a lot of people. <laughs> um, but like for me, it, it, made, it, it, it works the other way for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I find that with several things. But um, were, were there parts of, as, as you're interviewing these these different theologians and pastors and stuff some of the stuff that like was surprising to you or was it just what did it kind of in a way solidify where you were thinking these scriptures or these theologies and stuff were already coming from yeah a little bit of both i mean wh who you're quoting there is brian zond who's uh, just a great quote machine um he's <laughs> yeah. con constantly coming up with these great lines um yeah, I, I, I definitely 
<clears throat> chose to interview some people who I felt had that view of the atonement. I mean, not everybody in the film kind of looks at it the same way. Brian Zond would definitely be really informed by Rene Girard as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, Suzanne Ross and Gareth Higgins and another number of other people in the film. So you're always hoping for something, but you know, in a, I always say in a documentary, um, you, th you know, something like this, I do a t tremendous amount of research before I get involved. Um, before I go interview somebody like David Bentley Hart, you know, very yeah. intimidating person to go yes. and uh, have a conversation with. So I read virtually every book he'd ever written, plus numerous uh, articles about him, very critical of him, things where he, he's so fun to, when he goes after somebody in a criticism, boy, that is yeah. fun to read. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's been an enormous amount of time. And so you kind of think you have a pretty good sense of what this is all about going in. But you know, just even through the interview process, you learn so much. And then when it comes to editing the film, um, you know, that's really where a lot of it comes together. And so all these things are churning in your brain and, and you revisit these interviews and you see things that you didn't even notice on the day and that sort of yeah. thing. So, you know, there's a lot of learning. And then also for me, you know, I, I feel like as a filmmaker, if the film doesn't really deconstruct me, it's, it's probably not going to have much of an effect on the audience. And so, I mean, I found it personally very challenging in several aspects as well. I was like, oh, okay, mm. that, that, that feels a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, uh, I have a friend named Michael Harden who actually appears in uh, Hellbound who talks about the, uh, I think he has four pillars of evangelicalism, hell, divine violence, biblical inerrancy, and um, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, substitutionary atonement. Yeah. What's, what's the word for that? No. Oh, penal substitution. Penal substitution, yeah. yeah. So, but all of these things are built, or the four pillars of evangelicalism are basically built around violence or a legalistic framework. And so I'm kind of trying to, you know, hellbound in tandem with this film, I'm trying to systematically deconstruct those pillars because, you know, and I don't, I don't know if you want to get to this yet, but as David Hart, Bentley Hart says in the film, or I'll tell you something he said that didn't make it into the film. Mm. I was asking him a question and I said, you know, okay, so, when Christianity first came to America and he goes, Oh, I want to stop you right there. <laughs> he says, I'm not fully convinced Christianity has ever made it to America. Yeah. yeah. And uh, because what he's saying is that, you know, this violent, uh, you know, this violent religion um, that has sacrificed so many people uh, literally in wars um, and in state violence that is founded on, um, all the ultimate violence of eternal torment in hell and this this violent angry God and this version of Jesus that's going to come back not with a sword coming out of his mouth but with a sword in his hand somehow it moved up there yeah. and it's going to lay waste to the world I mean it's a horrific um, I would say satanic religion yeah. masquerading as um, the truth. And now uh, you want to come forward and give your life to the Lord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you don't, you know, it's uh, you know, bad things are going to happen. You know, that yeah. whole joke, you know, Jesus standing at the door and knocking and, and let me in. And the person says, why? Because of what I'm going to do to you if I, if you don't let me in. And uh, you know, so it's, it's this thing that's called Christianity that I got co-opted into as a nine-year-old kid. And then had to spend the next, you know, decades trying to crawl out of because I, I, you know, I, like many Christians, I'd been led to believe that this isn't just a version of Christianity or a theological tradition. This is the truth. And anyone outside of this stream is they're basically hellbound. They're dead eternally. And I will be, too, if I don't 
you know, toe the line. And, and that to me is like, if that's the, if that's the answer to the seek, you know, the, what is the secret of the universe? It's a, it's a psychosis. It's a, uh, the, yeah. I mean, we, one of the ways we put it often in our, the work we do together, a number of us here and others is that, um, if it isn't good news for for everyone, then how could it be good news? And and right. if it's bad news for almost everyone, <laughs> except people like us, possibly, yeah. yeah, except for for us. And and uh, but um, you know, I I'm looking up at producer Rick here. He's at the top of my screen. But uh, um, he, Rick is our resident American. Rick, you're a dual citizen. I am. Um, and uh, Rick is extremely well informed uh, politically and the rest. Uh, you you've seen. You've seen uh, JES USA. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel watching it? Uh, hard to say. I, 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 none, I actually wasn't as surprised with the first 10 minutes as maybe some uh, are because I, I spent years, uh, I was in a Christian rock band and I <laughs> toured around the world and in, in a lot in the US. And so was exposed a lot to, and to, to this day, I, 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 it's funny you talking about uh, your Facebook feed with COVID and just, it's like this daily fight. It's these people that you love and um, you wake up and see a post they put up about, you know, whatever. And you're just like, Oh man, <laughs> like yeah. um, fraud or something. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the thing that's the only thing that's been going through my mind just in the last few minutes here, I was struck with, uh, uh, what you said about, you know, violence, um, even if you, even as a last resort, it's just like, it's way too tempting to go to it quickly because it's, you know, um, uh, you know, and you, you see that in the first 10 minutes with these pastors and stuff like, uh, you know, according to them, there's just, you know, there's no evil that can't be fixed by not having an AR-15 or, a, uh, you know, some heavy firearm around to kill someone. And, uh, uh and that saying, it's a, it's a poor craftsman that blames his tools. Um, mm. And I think, uh, well put. yeah, we just, you know, if that's the only, if that's where you, you know, if you don't think love can work better, if you don't think, um, you know, you have many other options at your disposal to deal with, uh, you know, it's a poor craftsman that blames his tools. And yeah. I think you see that a lot with. Uh, uh, you, you refer to David mm-hmm. Bentley Hart, and um, we had uh, a, a lawyer slash theologian friend of ours, a guy named David Jennings, on on a previous episode of the podcast. He supports a lot of uh, you know work like some of the work you do, other things. He's um, on the board of Image Journal, and so he's involved in arts and other things. That, but he um, he read and loved David Bentley Hart's uh, recent book that all shall be saved. And so uh, having his fantastic legal mind and he has a theological mind as well, he kind of walked us through some of that. And so we have some familiarity with Hart and then those of us who have um, done some theological study and the rest, but uh, you kind of reference this in general, but I just wanted to read as Allison did one quote that comes up. I hope it's okay. Not, it's not spoiler alert or anything, but uh, toward the end of the film. And it echoes what you've said already. He says, if you've been raised American, you have been raised with a religion that is deeply anti-Christian. Um, well, and he goes on to, to say the next sentence is, you've been inoculated against the gospel. So with that, yeah, actually, thank you, Allison, for adding that, because that's an important <laughs> addition. Um, so, so to you, Kevin, how do you not become disillusioned by some of this? Because I assume from speaking with you here, seeing some of your work, 
um, you're not trying to kind of, um, you know, further the forces of a militaristic nationalistic kind of, kind of faith. You're thinking in another way. Yeah. Um, so how do you not become disillusioned? What is it that you find hopeful? Well, I, I think, you know, I go into, I went into Hellbound. I went into this film with a level of excitement that, that I feel like I've discovered something exciting that I want to share with people knowing that it's going to <clears throat> get people angry, but also feeling that if they can just sort of understand it, it will give them a level of freedom. Um, and I guess everybody maybe thinks that about what they believe. Um, but uh, so I, I'm optimistic in the sense that I know that, you know, I kind of, I'm 49, I just turned 49 and I, you know, think back in my forties and, and the biggest lesson of the four, my forties is how wrong I can be. And I can look at so many different conversions and changes of heart I've had about so many different things. And so, uh, you know, I remember back when I was working on Expelled and I would just get in these just knockdown fights with um, evolutionary, evolutionary biologists over wow. uh, intelligent design and, and just various issues. And, and I think they thought they were just yelling at a brick wall um, because I kept, you know, I, I just wouldn't cave into what they were saying, but you know, it took me several years before I finally came around to um, many of their points of view, to be honest. And uh, you know, I kind of almost look at intelligent design now as a conspiracy theory yeah. in terms of the in terms of the way, you know, I know some of the top perpetuators of that theory, and and that's sort of my sense of it. Um, uh, but uh, so I think that there's always hope that even people who really resist this type of thing in the moment you know, you can plant seeds in their mind that hopefully maybe they'll, they'll process at some point. Um, so I guess I can just look at my own experience and, you know, see that I, I guess I've changed my mind on a lot of things, even though I've been very stubbornly resisting it. Um, but yeah, I don't know, to be honest though, the things that does make me lose hope is the whole COVID-19 thing. Cause I think what it's done is it's really exposed a deep, deep, um, almost paranoiac, skepticism, particularly amongst um, conservative evangelicals and particularly conservative evangelicals in America. Right. I mean, it's stunning. Um, the level of mistrust of government, of uh, technology companies, of the media. Um, it's, uh, you know, my challenge back to them is continually, how do we have a society when you have zero confidence in every one of our socializing mechanisms, yeah. except for maybe your particular church and your family. Right. I mean, what's the foundation of civilization at this point? And so, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, that kind of makes me uh, of all institutions, yeah. all kind of things that have, that have led to maybe the, you know, standard of life and middle class, whatever it is. Yeah. And I, I remember we, we can echo that because we've all had conversations as well. You, you tend to think, well, this, this can go so far and can last as long as things are relatively comfortable, but what would happen, you know, if, if tons of people started dying, people would have the, the kind of fallacies of their ways of thinking exposed. But as, as I hear you speaking, it seems to be that in some ways those are becoming more deeply entrenched, even as yeah. tens of thousands of people are dying in the United States. And, and that this COVID-19 particularly has become now an American story in the world in terms of number of cases and, and tragically number of deaths. And so it is easy to become disillusioned, but I want to maybe end with this note uh, that I wrote down. Oh, first off, um, how do you find the people in your, in, in the film? Like we, we all really resonated with Gareth Higgins as well. 
Yep. You just part of that was just research. his accent. Let's be fair. Part it of wasn't it, only his accent; it was his, his theology accent. too. But uh, <laughs> the theology too. Yeah. Yeah, I I knew Gareth. Uh, I'm trying to think when I oh I first met Gareth actually because he was organizing the Wild Goose Festival, where, which was actually the first public screening of Hellbound. So I got to know him then. I have some other mutual friends. So oh, okay. um, yeah, but other people you just you know you reach out to as a documentarian. You know, once you know what it is you want to make the film about, do a lot of research. You try and find the voices who are the most cogent on the various topics, you know, uh, and there's probably at least half a dozen people I interviewed who I didn't put in the film. Hmm. You know, I interviewed a psychiatrist, actually two, a sociologist and anyway, just trying to get at this. So you just try and source people and you reach out to them and hopefully they get back to you. And, and do, uh, do yeah. People who think very differently than you. So sometimes we like, um, so in this case, that first 10 minutes, do most of those people, kind of see you coming and did you get a lot of rejections or my assumption would be that no, they're willing to just <laughs> tell you what they think because. Yeah. I mean, cause I told them that I wanted to make a film that features a broad range of perspectives on this issue. And uh, you know, that uh, you know, I felt that they were good spokespeople for a certain perspective. Right. And, and so I wanted to represent them and, and, you know, I liked all those people meeting them personally. Wow. Um, you know, Sean Moon, who's featured in the film, he's yeah. famous for, uh, being the youngest son of Reverend Sung Young Moon and also then having his own church where a couple of years ago they did a, a marriage rededication ceremony that also involved uh, bringing a weapon like an AR-15 to church. And so they seem like crazy people in the mind of so many people. But I would gladly live next door to these folks because, um, you know, I listened to Sean lecture the young men in his church for like three hours on respecting women, on um, working hard, acquiring property, being professional, like just basically a very positive message, basically kind of getting them to, you know, so there's, there's a lot of good things going on in these groups and they're not aggressive in any way. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, it's, I, I think in, in, in Hellbound, uh, it was interesting, I guess it was it the people from Phelps's church or something that were, you were interviewing them down near uh, the 9-11 memorial and yep. and all that sort of thing. W was that a, now there you hadn't set up the interview. You were just uh, <laughs> there at the protest. Was that a different tone and a different vibe at that point? That, that was a different vibe, but we actually had arranged to meet them there. Oh, um, you had, okay. And uh, they're, they're media hounds. So they're like, oh, <laughs> camera. Yes, I'll, be, I'll go in your camera. Um, but it was interesting because I talked to them that day and then we ran into them over the next couple of days being around New York. And whenever they'd see me, they'd, you know, catcall me and that sort of thing. And they even issued their own version of a fatwa against me once the film came out. But uh, they, uh, yeah, so that was a little bit more antagonistic. Um, but I generally, as a filmmaker, I don't want an antagonistic relationship with the people I'm interviewing. No. I'm not that kind of a person. I, I'm more of a sociologist. I'm more just really interested in a kind of minimizing observer interference. And so that, I can get a clean reading from them, something that they would, you know, so that they can very clearly espouse what they believe. Cause that's the most helpful yeah. thing for me in terms of, you know, what I want to put on film. Rick, you had a comment on that. Well, I just, I just wanted to really quickly add in uh, what you said earlier about, and Todd, you and I've talked about this for, for years now where um, you said through your forties, uh, it's kind of, you get into 49 and, and realizing how wrong you, you can be. And I would add the thing that Todd and I've talked about for years now is uh, how wrong you can be and how much damage you can cause when you're right. Mm. Or yeah, when you're convinced you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, like you just said, just like it'd be so easy to go to these interviews and just other than the people you're talking to 
Um, yeah. And, and it must though, I, I would think, and now I'm just going back to the not being disillusioned. It must be difficult for you at times to walk away from some of those scenes and realize how many followers, you know, think where you can think like there are a ton of people listening to this stuff. And, uh, and that, that's sometimes what, what frustrates me is um, how easy it seems to be to, you know, again, throw out scripture citations or something and just, but I wanted to end with, with um, a little, I, uh, as I say, can we go to something down. before you end. Okay. Ken, go ahead. <laughs> so I want to get to kids books. So anyway, okay, go ahead. okay. We can end with kids books. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of these things have been based in the States, but where do you see, where do you see some of this translating over into Canada? I mean, obviously there's not so much the extent of, Christian nationalism, but some of the ideas that come out of that, and even some of the ideas that, that come out of Hellbound and stuff like that, but um, out of the everything from that sort of militaristic view of of scripture, the literalist view of scripture, the the violence of the cross that that justifies us, uh, that God. I described it as one of the quotes, sort of. The, the theology that God is actually a mobster, or a bookie. He, mm-hmm. he, you may not be able to pay him back, but he'll extract his his money from someone else. So it's not really forgiveness, is is the quote from the from the movie. Where do you see some of that translating over into the Canadian culture, and and or where have you interacted with that in the Canadian um, con- context. context? Well, C- Canada is definitely more secular than the United States, but I think uh, <clears throat> there's a guy named John Paul. He wrote a book called Empire Sacrifice, where he says that a lot of you know, theological ideas have now kind of been transferred onto the state. And I think the new orthodoxy kind of would make a similar case that the state, in a sense, takes on the role of God. But we all sort of inherit this uh, this Gnostic kind of uh, legalistic way of looking at the world and the scapegoating, all that sort of stuff that even though we're a more secular country, I think we've inherited a lot of those ideas from, you know, this you know, type of Christianity that was also involved, you know, in the earliest, uh, you know, people to come to, to Canada as well. So I think, and, and plus the, what do we all do as Canadians? We all look South. I mean, mm-hmm. so we're, we're so tremendously influenced. And this is, gets back to David Bentley Hart's uh, mentioned that um, not only have we, we've been raised in sort of a, an anti-Christian world, we've been inoculated against the gospel because like anyone who's in a cult, they're in the worst of all possible worlds because that they've accepted something as the truth and they've been inoculated, inoculated against the very people who could come and set them free from that thing. Um, It's like I was, I've been saying to people about conspiracy theories, like they're not falsifiable because any evidence you can bring against a conspiracy theorist is a product of the conspiracy. Yeah, exactly. So they're hermetically sealed. Exactly. And, and I think, though, that conspiracy theorists aren't the only ones in that situation. It's anybody who is just taking this totally uncritical approach to what they believe. Because as uh, I guess Greg Boyd says it more in uh, Hellbound, you know, we mistake the map for the territory that uh, mm. we, uh, you know, we, we don't recognize that we're viewing the world through a model. So I always kind of encourage people to default to experience, to be like a scientist. A scientist is saying, I have a theory, I have an experiment. Does the experiment match my theory? If not, I have to, I, I can't adjust reality. I have to adjust my theory because obviously my theory is not mapping very well onto reality. And I think that too often we get hung up on these theological systems that don't map well onto reality. And so what do we do? We, we just like stretch yeah. them out and, you know, just try and make it fit instead of just maybe letting it go and letting reality dictate to us instead of the other way around. And, and I think it's at that point we get, we get terrified of the idea that if I let one thing go, 
the whole house of cards falls. So because uh, it w- because it will, which it does, because it will, but, it, it needed to. The, yes. the, King, the King James Bible was written by Jesus himself. If I let that go, then all my um, and even back to your idea in, that's expressed in the film of the, these accounts of God telling everyone saying thou shall go into the city to slaughter everyone may just be their way of justifying themselves and telling, you know, we had a great victory. So it's actually not coming from God. It's them, uh, you know, giving this, this, um, a human telling of the legend or of the myth. And yet, if you actually believe that, then that will cause people to their house of cards around the literal account and literal interpretation of the Bible, that God breathed the whole thing. Everything is fact. Yes. The sun stood still. Um, all that sort of stuff. You have to hold to that or else everything else well, we, crumbles. You know, we've, uh, we talked to, in, in our podcast here, we talked to Brad Jerzak about some of this, the, dif- the difference between um, deconstruction and bulldozing or something or renovating faith. Or, but the truth is that uh, a lot of those cards have to fall. And if we, uh, if we can be part of, in a positive way, encouraging some of that into something better, um, so be it. We're glad to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to end with your own quote. You said, I, I make books that make kids laugh and films that make adults angry. Uh, <laughs> tell us uh, maybe a little bit about your kids' books and why you like doing that so much. Sure. I mean, uh, like I said, I always want to uh, write novels. And so I, I about four years ago, I started the, I released the first book in a series. It's aimed at middle grade readers called Up the Creek. The series is called the Milligan Creek series. They're all set in a fictionalized version of uh, Foam Lake, Saskatchewan, where I grew up. And I'm very much influenced by writers like Roald Dahl or Gordon Corman, who were some of my favorite authors when I was a kid. And, and they're <clears throat> so fun to write because, um, uh, you can just create these ridiculous situations um, and just over the top characters and just really have a lot of fun uh, doing it. So there's lots of humor, lots of adventure. And, uh, and yet, you know, uh, there's other ideas that can sneak in there too. Like I, my third book's called the water war and it's really a story about scapegoating and uh, you know, a valuable lesson that, that the characters learn. But that was a Gerard for, for kids, for kids. Yeah. Although, you know, again, I'm very much, when it comes to fiction, I always say that, you know, as a writer, you should never start out with a message. You should always, the story should teach, the story is going to naturally teach you something about life, but the first person it needs to teach is the author, not the other way around. And so I think if you try and write fiction imposing that, it just kills it. And that's nodding his head as a, as a theater guy and storyteller. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where so much Christian fiction just goes out the window because it, it, the only reason it exists is because of the message. And I'm like, well, if you already know how it ends, you know, yeah. nobody's surprised. <laughs> well, Kevin, thank you so much. Um, we, we all love the, the film, but I thank can you. already tell that our conversation with you has brought us a lot deeper and brought uh, for me and, and for friends here speaking with you. A, a greater interest in the in the work that you're doing and Thank a you. desire to support the work that you're doing and to to direct others towards it um because uh it it's a it's just really really quality stuff but also it it has a lot to say and so thanks for taking this time um we'll put any any um notes that you want in the episode notes to get people to the right things we may even put like some Rene Girard stuff there's a lot of references there um there there's some fantastic stuff there for people who want to delve a little bit deeper like um I see Satan fall like lightning this this uh, book or or the stuff on mimetic theory uh, for those who are listening and want to pursue that it would be well worth it um thank you all everybody who all the co-hosts who are here um 
we'll be uh, gathering again and we will have, um, Kevin, one of the things that we do on this is we have a tasting each time. It's called Rector's Cupboard and there's a little tasting that we do either at a local distillery or a craft brewery or something like that or a tea shop or an olive oil place. And we usually gift the uh, guest with a bottle of, you know, whatever it is. Um, mm. But you're in, uh, you know, miles away from us here. So we'll find a way to uh, to get you something. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to following your career and your work and even getting some of those kid books. Awesome. Thank you for your interest. I appreciate it. Thanks so it. much. Take good care. Okay. You guys too. All right.